Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Confounding, exhilarating, and contagious. Emotions matter, and so does applying emotional intelligence. Welcome to Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight, the podcast where emotions rule. Whatever the topic, how do hearts and minds collide? Find out with your host, a college professor turned globetrotting EQ entrepreneur. His mission? Each week, Dan joins prominent authors in decoding how emotions drive outcomes and make people tick. Now, on to the show. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining me for the 97th episode of my podcast, Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight. The series appears here on the New Books Network, which has as its motto, sharing knowledge so people can thrive. Today's topic is Same Storm, Different Boats. I'm joined by Mike Robbins. He's the author of We're All in This Together, Creating a Team Culture of High Performance, Trust, and Belonging. The publisher is Hay House. Mike is the author of four previous books. He's a speaker, consultant, thought leader. Clients have included Google, Wells Fargo, Microsoft, Gap, and the Oakland A's. Besides being a regular contributor to Forbes, his work has been featured in the Harvard Business Review, the New York Times, Fast Company, Wall Street Journal, NPR, and many, many other places. Welcome to the show, Mike. Dan, thanks for having me. Good to be here. Absolutely. So let's uh, plunge right in. What is this book is about anyway? Well, you know, it's called We're All In This Together, and I wrote it, uh, I finished writing it in 2019, um, and it was scheduled to come out in 2020 in the spring. Of course, I had no idea it was going to come out in the midst of a global pandemic, but um, so the book has taken on some different meaning since it came out, but at its core, it's really about creating a team culture of high performance, of trust and belonging inside of organizations of all kinds. I've had a chance to partner with lots of different companies and teams and organizations over the last couple of decades. So this book is really kind of a distillation of 20 years of my work and my research. Um, but again, it sort of has taken a new angle, if you will, um, during the pandemic. And the paperback's actually coming out very soon. And I wrote a, wrote a whole new premise, which sort of touches on that notion that uh, you talked about as the title of our episode here, which is, you know, people were asking me, Dan, right as, after the book came out, um, as we were going into COVID, are we really all in this together? Like I was talking to leaders who were having to make really hard decisions about furloughs and layoffs and people were reflecting on what was happening culturally and politically and socially. And what became abundantly clear to me is it's more like we're all in the same storm, but we're in different boats, which is actually always true, not just during a pandemic, but all the time. So that's kind of the essence of what the book is about. 
Sure, this just happened to be a particularly long storm and a rather intense one. Yeah, yes. exactly. One we're, we weren't quite prepared for and most of us are very sick of, but uh, here we are nonetheless, right? Sure. Well, since this paperback is coming out soon, uh, let's give you the opportunity to maybe preface what you wrote for that new edition. And just in terms of, uh, if I'm putting this in a context, you know, what's really going on with how COVID has roiled the waters of the of the workplace and uh, kinds of assignments and and inquiries you've gotten from HR leaders because the book is you know the book I read is uh, full of uh, all sorts of evidence of that twenty years that you alluded to. Yeah, well, I mean, again, I think what I've seen over the last two years is a little different than what I'd seen in the previous you know twenty years of doing this work. But in some ways, even pre COVID the world is just speeding up and speeding up and speeding up and the way we do business and the way we communicate and the way we buy things and sell things and the whole nature of our society is continuing to change and be disrupted and transform. And then, you know, with the pandemic, a lot of the companies that I partner with, you know, big tech companies, big financial institutions, even, you know, school districts and nonprofits and everybody that we work with, it's just fundamentally changed the way that we work and the way that we connect. And so what I've been saying to a lot of our clients, and I'm not saying it just as a way to sort of pitch the work is like, Hey, this stuff is even more important and more challenging than ever because, you know, this notion of being in it together, um, you know, is usually sort of predicated on the idea that we work in the same location or we can at least yes. get together <laughs> and see each other for meetings and meals and things like that. And since that hasn't been the case, um, for a lot of you know people in their professional endeavors, and even the folks that are more essential workers are working in environments where they've been sort of on site or out there in the field, even during all of this, it's just fundamentally changed the way that we interact and communicate. So, you know, a lot of what I tried to address in the preface was like, hey, I didn't write this book with COVID in mind, but now after almost two years of COVID, here are a few of the things that I've learned, and a lot of the pillars and principles in this book. I think are even more important now. They're just more challenging because we can't do and say and operate in a lot of the same ways we have for such a long time. Okay. Yeah. And, and just to, you know, help out uh, listeners, those four pillars, if you want to maybe take us through them, and then I want to come back to COVID and, and then back through your 20 years. So just, just, yeah, run us down through the, through the four pillars a bit, if you could to elaborate more than what you said in the intro. Yeah. Yeah. So the first pillar is really about creating psychological safety. Um, and the second pillar is, you know, focusing on, um, inclusion and belonging. The third pillar is about embracing what I call sweaty palm conversations. And then the fourth pillar is about caring about and challenging each other. Um, so those are the four pillars, which we can dive more into if you want, but really kind of, you know, again, a distillation of a lot of the work and the research that I've done over these last two decades. Sure. Well, I mean, the first of those psychological safety with COVID, we now have, you know, literally physical safety right. uh, becomes a factor. I would imagine with remote and hybrid work, uh, questions about uh, cohesion, remoteness, leading to fears of loneliness or being forgotten by the head office. Yep. Um, any of those things you want to delve into? Well, you know, what's interesting, so this notion of psychological safety is really about group trust. It's like, is the group, is the team safe enough for risk-taking, for taking risks, speaking up, making mistakes, failing even not that we want to. And one of the biggest challenges 
that a lot of the teams and organizations that I worked with for many years would deal with, especially as they'd grow and business is done nationally and globally. It's like, hey, you know, there's the home office, there's HQ, and then there's all the field offices or people working remotely. And what's interesting is some of the best leaders, Dan, that I worked with in for many years would do certain things to try to level the playing field. Of course, it's always going to be somewhat advantageous to be at the main office where all the executives are and where all the things are happening. But I remember working with a leader at Google a few years back, this was pre-COVID, and she said she was struggling with her team working and having people in different regions and different time zones. And when they would do their weekly team meetings, instead of having all the people at the headquarters office in one room and then everybody else, either conference calling in or video conferencing in remotely, she would tell everybody, go to your desk, go on to your computer, and we're all going to do the meeting remotely, which again was sort of a revolutionary idea a few years ago. It's now the way we all do everything on Zoom or whatever video platform. But you know that being an example of like, how do you create a sense of cohesion when people are in different spaces? And then over these last couple of years, with a lot of people actually just being at home and having their kids be at home, you know, doing school that way and all of the, you know, ancillary sort of mental and emotional and just personal challenges. A lot of the leaders that I talk to will say things to me these days like, hey, I didn't uh, real, realize that I was signing up, you know, to be a therapist or a psychologist <laughs> for my team. I mean, that's yeah. been a challenge for years, but now it's like, you know, the mental health challenges people are dealing with are real and they're intense. Yeah, no, I mean, the, the sense of isolation yeah. alone would be, uh, uh, you know, a huge issue. Have you seen certain, uh, you know, as you as you tried to help clients with this, uh, certain tips, uh, practices, exercises? I mean, how have you tried to help them o over the hump, probably at the same time you're helping yourself over the hump? Right. I mean, I think a big part of my work has always been, and again, it's been even more important these last couple of years, is just giving people this space to open up and share authentically vulnerably about their experience. And so, you know, one of the things that some of the best teams and best leaders that I work with are, have been able to do, and look, this thing has gone on for a long time and there's been phases of it and there's a certain fatigue to it, but just being, and again, this is also helpful and necessary when we get on the other side of this thing, hopefully sooner rather than later, are we checking in with each other? Is there space for people to actually talk about how they're feeling or what's going on outside of work? And as simple as that might sound, that's actually really important. And to set the tone, I remember in the early days of the pandemic, there was one leader who I talked to and she said, you know, one of the things I do when we all get on Zoom as a team, I spend the first 15 minutes just letting people talk about whatever's going on or even asking people to private chat me on a scale from zero to 10. How are you doing today mentally, emotionally, just so I can sort of take the temperature of where people are at. And she's like, there were some days early on where I'd get you know, ones and twos and threes. And I realized, whoa, everybody's really struggling. Like I need to spend more time just caring for the people on my team. And if, you know, I'd get a bunch of six and sevens and eights and nines, it was like, okay, easier to dive into business, but setting up some dynamic or some environment, some kind of safe space where people can just talk about what's really going on is super important. And if you're the type of leader, or you have the type of culture where it's like, you know, everything is very transactional and business oriented, which by the way, the virtual world lends itself to that because we click onto the Zoom and we have a conversation yep. and we click off. There's not like much preamble. There's not walking down the hall to the meeting. There's not leaving the meeting and checking in with people after and at lunch saying, oh yeah, remember we had, you know, there's none of that. There's just your day is filled. A lot of people's days are just filled with back to back to back separate 
isolated transactional conversations on Zoom. And it's, uh, you know, it's exhausting for people. Yeah, no, I, I like the fact that leader recognized that some days you just can't plunge into the work. Right. Uh, you, you've got you got wounded bodies, so to speak, on that call. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And uh, you, you got to do something about it. No, I, I like that a lot. Um, so another you, thing you had mentioned to me in our conversation before we went on the air here was DEI, uh, obviously with, you know, I mean, we could go to any number of cases that are in the news, uh, you know, George Floyd, yeah. uh, you know, on and on and on. But um, how has, has that still been a, a pretty big driver during COVID, taking a little bit of a backseat? Has COVID in some ways uh, made this lack of cohesion <laughs> uh, just it's all like one big car wreck, emotionally speaking? Well, look, I think I think there's a couple things. You know, my previous book that I wrote is called Bring Your Whole Self to Work, and it came out in 2018. And one of the pieces of feedback that I got from some of my colleagues, as well as just people in general, was, hey, Mike, you wrote a book called Bring Your Whole Self to Work, which is a lot about authenticity, a lot about, again, a lot of the work that I've done for years. But I purposefully didn't spend much time in that book talking about diversity, equity, and inclusion. Not because I'm not interested, not because I'm not passionate. I actually grew up, you know, look, I'm straight, I'm white, I'm male. I grew up in Oakland, California, and very diverse environment, went to public schools, played sports, was often the only white kid on the team, had this really unique experience and that I didn't realize was unique until I went to college at Stanford, just 45 minutes from where I grew up. But the vast majority of the kids at Stanford were all white and it come from different backgrounds than I had. And I ended up getting my degree at Stanford in American Studies with a specialization in race and ethnicity. And when I went out into the world and started my business 20 plus years ago, my thought was, oh, I really want to talk about diversity because it's super important to me. But immediately I was like, who's going to listen to a young, straight, white guy talk about race, talk about gender, talk about orientation and inclusion? I'm like, that, I just... I didn't think anybody would listen. And I also felt out of respect for people who have very different lived experience than I do, I should take a step back and let people who know what it's like to be part of one or more, you know, groups that self-identify and are in, in the minority versus the majority. Fast forward all the way to now and, and what's happened over the last couple of years, my thinking has changed around a lot of this. And while I'm not a DEI expert per se, one of the main reasons that I wrote we're all in this together was because I wanted to do some additional research on DEI and I wanted to include it and incorporate in it. Like this is not just important to do culturally and socially. This is actually important to do from a performance standpoint. And this was before George Floyd was murdered. This was before all of the demonstration and what we saw in the you know, spring and summer and fall of 2020. And so that's just a long way of saying like these issues have been incredibly important and challenging for teams and organizations to address. And over the last couple of years, even in the midst of COVID and with everything going on, there seems to be that much more interest and resource and support for this. The challenge that most companies and teams and leaders are facing is what do we actually do to make it better and how do we go about that? So I think that's a big question or a big series of questions that I'm not sure that a lot of people have the right answers to necessarily, but I think more of the right questions are being asked. And that's some of what we're trying to help some of our clients with. Sure. And hopefully there's a lot more self-reflection than, uh, you know, might've happened a few years ago as these headlines have kept coming at us. I mean, one thing I, I guess I have to think about is, you know, Gen Z's entering the workforce. It's yeah. very multi 
multicultural, multiracial. Yes. Uh, the executive ranks probably do not reflect that. Right. Um, have you done some work at this point now that's particularly trying to, in terms of DI, bring the executive team to a better understanding of Gen Z? I know you're not necessarily a generational expert either because <laughs> uh, you, you have a broader portfolio. Right. But uh, wonder if you, you've had some things come up there. And, and particularly, you might want to mention one of your exercises that I like, which was the trash can exercise. Yes. Well, look, one thing. So, yeah, that trash can exercise is an interesting one around privilege. Yes. Um, right. I, I read about this. It was actually a high school teacher um, shared this, and I, I excerpt it in the book, that basically he said the way that he teaches his class about privilege is he passes out scrap paper to all the kids in the class and they're sitting in rows and he puts a trash can in the front of the class and he says, this trash can represents making it, you know, the American dream or whatever his success would be in whatever country and wherever you live in the world. But, and he said, what I want you to do from your desk is crumple up your piece of paper and, and throw it from your seat. And if you make it in the can, you made it. If you miss, sorry. And he's like, immediately what happens, the kids start to do this and then they start to think about it. And right away, the kids that are sitting in the back of the class are far to the side say, hold on a second, this isn't fair this isn't fair. Like I'm sitting way in the back far corner. I have a much harder shot than my classmates who are sitting right up front. And he said, I stopped the discussion and I say, okay, notice everybody has a shot. So there is opportunity, but not everybody has the same shot. And he said, you know, for those of you notice who's complaining the most, the people who have the toughest shot. And he said, those of you sitting right in front, your first thought probably wasn't on oh, so lucky to be sitting up here because it's not a slam dunk. You still have, you know, 10 feet or so you got to throw the thing to get in there. Sure. He said in that, he said, I end the lesson by explaining that education is a privilege that not everybody has. And so one of the challenges we all have is what do we do with the privilege that we do have? H have you had executives take that exercise? Yeah. And, and what's interesting, having the conversation, you know, with the thing about privilege and privilege has turned into this whole discussion and whole notion, like it's almost like a pejorative in some weird way. When you really think about the essence of what privilege is, privilege is having opportunity that other people don't. I think the challenge is a lot of us hear that word and think that means, oh, you're saying I didn't earn it or I don't deserve it or I didn't work hard or it's just, no, we're just not all starting at the same place. And then the question yeah. becomes, what do we do with that privilege? And, and to the generational question that you asked, you know, what's interesting, Dan, when I first started my work, I was in my 20s. I'm a Gen Xer. I, you know, I, I had this interesting background where I played sports. I played baseball all growing up and then played at Stanford and then played professionally for a few years. And then I got injured and my baseball career ended. So I go into, it's the late 90s. I get a job working in the dot-com world out here in the Bay Area where I still live and did that for a couple of years. Dot-com bubble bursts. I lose my job. And I start my consulting business really with this notion of, I think I have some ideas, things I've learned about teamwork, about success, about other aspects of sort of navigating the intangible aspects of life and, you know, winning and losing. I would like to share some of that. And what ended up happening and how I was able to actually start working with some of these big corporations was companies, more traditional companies like Wells Fargo, like Chevron, like Kaiser Permanente, all that are based here in the San Francisco Bay Area where I live, they were struggling at the time. This was 20 plus years ago with generational challenges then because all of these Gen Xers who were my age were getting hired after working in the internet world. And now they were working with baby boomers and even people who were older than baby boomers in the corporate world, and they were really having a hard time understanding each other and communicating and collaborating because the style and the approach and everything from language to clothes to, you know, you name it was so different. Now, fast forward to where we are today. And, you know, a lot of boomers have retired, although there's still some around 
doing a lot of great things. There's a lot of Gen Xers like myself who we've gotten sort of aced out because it's all about the millennials. And now we've got Gen Z coming in. So we kind of have these four distinct generations in the workforce. And while I'm not a generational expert, one of the things that I work with a lot of our clients on is really listening to each other in a much more authentic and empathetic way, trying to learn from each other because we're very much influenced by our age and the generation in which we grew up, where we grew up, our background, our socioeconomics, our race, our gender, all those things. But there's such a big difference between someone who's 55 years old and someone who's 25 years old, especially in today's world. But if businesses and companies are going to stay effective in the ways they need to be today, we've got to listen to that you know, 20-something who's right out of school. And that 20-something also really needs to learn to listen to the leaders who've walked around the planet for a few more decades than they have to learn how to be as effective and successful as they want to be. Sure. Well, we're, you know, part of this COVID uh, legacy or hangover, whatever we're going to call it, um, is the great resignation. Right. And a lot of people rethinking their careers, yep. uh, saying, well, I'm, I'm officially designated as an essential worker. I don't feel so essential right. uh, based on uh, how I'm treated, my, my benefits package, salary, work conditions, et cetera. I mean, you do mention as part of your pillars, you know, we, we've talked a bit now about psychological safety and inclusiveness. Right. Uh, but there's also your point that you do have to have some difficult conversations. You will have some difficult conversations. Yep. And then as part of that, you got to, you know, demonstrate that you indeed care. So, um, you know, what has kind of materialized for you in your career uh, doing from that angle, from the uh, the war for talent and the desperate attempt to hold on to the talent one has? Well, look, I've always been a big believer through my research and my experience. People work for two reasons. Primarily, they work for money and they work for appreciation and or meaning. So the thing is, look, the reality, and it's been weird because when we first got into COVID a few years ago, it really looked like the economy was going to crater completely. And with the exception of a handful of sectors that were massively disrupted, and you know, if you worked in hospitality or initially in retail, you were having a tough time, obviously, but just about every other sector of the economy, and even those now have not only rebounded, but have done incredibly well for the most part. And I'm not minimizing the fact that a lot of small businesses went out of business and there were a lot of challenges that we're still contending with. And now, of course, we're dealing with inflation and other issues. But there are, and this whole work remotely thing opened up the entire world. So you didn't have to live in New York City or Chicago or San Francisco or London or wherever. You could work anywhere you wanted to and still work for these big, you know, sort of, you know, multinational corporations. So what that's done is created a ton of opportunity for employees everywhere. Couple that with the fact that people are tired, they're weary, they're bored, they're restless, they're everyone's looking somewhere else. So what that's done is it's put all of these companies in a really difficult spot because it's like, how do we keep our employees engaged and how do we make sure they don't leave? And even the best environments out there, everybody's losing talent right now. I'm not, there's not anyone I'm talking to that's not either losing talent or concerned about losing talent. But the thing that we have to remember is these things go in cycles. And the reality is there will be a point, I don't know when, because I'm not a futurist, <laughs> but it will turn and there won't be quite as many opportunities. But one of the things that is important for people to remember, there was a study that Nextdoor did a few years ago asking people who left their jobs voluntarily, why did you leave? And 64% of the people in the study said, I left because I didn't feel valued or appreciated. It was more important than their title, their role, and even how much money they made. So I constantly share that with the leaders that I work with in the organizations. Like, look, doing anything and everything you can 
to make sure the people on your team and the people in your organization feel valued, feel heard, feel cared about, and feel appreciated. And that's not about throwing more money at them or more benefits at them necessarily. That's part of it. But it really has a lot to do with, you know, the old adage, people don't quit their job, they quit their boss. So a lot of it is their relationship with their direct supervisor or manager. And that's where companies that really invest in caring for and training and empowering the leadership all the way down through the organization are much more likely to have engaged employees. Yeah, no, I, one of the things I really liked in the book was your distinction between recognition versus appreciation and how yeah. recognition is performance-based. It's about the past. It comes down from on high. Anyone can appreciate you and it's who you are and what you do here and now. Yeah. And I, I love that distinction. I thought that was really great. Well, thanks. You know, and it's over the years what I've learned. I mean, Dan, I've gotten invited to speak at so many recognition events over the years, which I love. They're always fun. They're usually at nice locations. People come. They've won an award. They get to bring a guest sometimes. Everyone's in a great mood. But one of the questions I always ask whenever I speak at these recognition events is I'll ask the people, the winners there, what was it about winning this award that had you feel appreciated? And it's interesting because I'll have them pair up sometimes and talk and then people will share. And it's usually these really simple like, oh, you know, my boss wrote me a card or someone came and congratulated me or my son told me he was proud of me. It's like these moments, right? Even inside of recognition, which is about performance, which is something that's conditional that we have to earn. What we really want is to be seen and be heard and be valued. And appreciation is really about valuing people. It's about caring about people. So if we can decouple it from performance, and I come from the world of sports, right? It's like everyone loves you when you win the game. Everyone, no one talks to you when you lose the game but you're the same person. You know, I often will think if I watch the Super Bowl or something or some big sporting event, it's like, I'm thinking more about the losing team than the winning team, unless it's one of the teams that I love and root for. But like, how do all those players feel? How do they, it takes just as much effort to lose the championship game as it does to win the championship game, you know? And so I think if we can think about that as a leader or teams think about that, let's recognize ourselves and each other when we deserve it which isn't going to be all the time, but let's appreciate and value each other all the time. Yeah, no, I like that a lot. You know, William James said, you know, what we want most in life is to be appreciated. Yes. So that's part of the reason why I went for that part of the book big time. Yeah. Um, so before we run out of time here, just going back over those those 20 years, it sounds like uh, you were asked to speak at a lot of recognition events, uh, you know, generational issues got on your radar screen rather yeah. quickly with, you know, Jen. X, um, you know, nowadays we've, we've got COVID and remote work, we've got DEI. If you kind of pull together the whole 20 years and maybe set aside the, the, the COVID stuff, what would you say are the three, four, five issues that you found the, the HR people coming to you repeatedly and uh, gave you the opportunity to try to practice your considerable skills at, at empathy and social cohesion and so forth? Well, I think first and foremost, and this is apropos to your podcast and a lot of your work is, you know, EQ, emotional intelligence, like trying for people to more fully understand what does that mean? How do I develop that? You know, it's like, you know, Daniel Goleman wrote his great book, what it was 25, 30 years ago that started to popularize the idea. But it was really like people thought it was crazy at first, this notion that, you know, two thirds of a leader's effectiveness has more to do with his or her EQ. And not as much with their IQ. And so that's evolved over the 20 plus years I've been doing this. But I think that is a question that I get all the time. How do we enable and empower our leaders and all of our people to really enhance their emotional intelligence? A second thing is burnout, which we're dealing with significantly now during COVID, but even before COVID was a really big issue. People are just tired, exhausted. The pace of life and business, as I was saying earlier, 
is so intense. I would say a third thing is, you know, having those, what I call sweaty palm conversations, what my friend Kim Scott, who I know is on your show as well, wrote about in her book, Radical Candor. It's like, how can we really have difficult but important conversations effectively? How do we give feedback? How do we talk about tough issues, but do it in a way that actually brings us closer together and makes people better and stronger as opposed to freaks everybody out or upsets everyone and <laughs> leaves people traumatized. And that's not easy to do, especially in a, you know, global working world where cultures and languages and practices are very different. Um, you know, fourthly, it's like, I'm talking a lot about just teamwork and team performance, um, you know, and how to stay connected, especially when we're disconnected. And then, you know, fifth, I would say, is mental health. And that's been even more significant in the last few years, but it was starting to become a bigger issue across the board, even before COVID. And I think coming out of COVID, one of the many things I hope we learn from this whole experience is part of the job of leaders and teams and organizations is to create environments that are conducive to people's mental and emotional well-being. I think we started to learn that and have been learning that around physical wellness and companies that engage on wanting to make sure people are active and there's healthy food and the environment is conducive to, you know, people being healthy and well physically. I think the next phase of that is going to be more around mental and emotional well-being. Yeah. Well, we've had Naomi Osaka and other athletes, yep. I think, helping put a spotlight on on mental issues. And if with all their accomplishments and abilities, um, you know, they can have additional virtue of their candor and, and bringing that forward. I think that's remarkable and helpful to uh, to everybody. Um, it's interesting you mentioned teamwork because, yeah, I, I see all sorts of evidence that teamwork is all the rage and ever more important in terms of how your job is shaped. And yet now we're doing teamwork without having physical presence together, <laughs> right. the, the different boats. So um, that, that's an interesting one. It's true. It's really true. It's harder, again, harder than ever, but more important than ever. Like, how do you create a virtual team where people maybe have never met each other? I talk to people all the time and they're like, I don't even know how tall all the people on my team are because we've never met in person. <laughs> You know, I like that. Harder than ever, but more important than ever. That seems a good way to end our conversation yeah. here. So, so Mike, I want to thank you so much for being my guest. This is episode number 97, Same Storm, Different Boats. Uh, Mike Robbins is the author of We're All in This Together, Creating a Team Culture of High Performance, Trust, and Belonging. If you enjoyed today's show, please give it a rating or review on iTunes. You can find other episodes by going either to my company's website, the obligatory three W's and sensorylogic.com or to the New Books Network. Type in my show's name and you'll find the other episodes there. Finally, I'd like to conclude every episode with an epigram. In this case, I took one from Ryan Lilly, who said, growing a culture requires a good storyteller. Changing a culture requires a persuasive editor. Until next time, take care and be well. 